There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, I'm joined by author, writer, and total outdoorsman T. Edward Nickens to discuss what it actually looks like to live a life dedicated to hunting, fishing, and conservation. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by First Light. We're here for another episode in our Conservation Month series. Now, so far, we've learned about issues specifically related to whitetail deer conservation in the last year. We've explored the conservation legacy and philosophies of Aldo Leopold. And most recently, we dove into the particulars of grassland conservation the impacts that has on deer and other wildlife, and recent attempts to protect these landscapes and animals. Now today, we're going to zoom out to the general. But I guess at the same time, we're kind of diving right in to the heart of the matter. What I mean by that is that, uh, you know, I think it's been pretty clearly established that if we want to enjoy deer and deer hunting and open space and all these other things we enjoy outdoors, if we want to do that, It's on us to help conserve and protect these things in the future. But how the hell do we actually do that? Especially when it's seeming like, you know, there's there's so many challenges out there facing the natural world and our hunting lifestyle, not to mention all the other BS that we've got going on in our own lives that we need to deal with and figure out. So how can we actually make a difference? How do we make the time for it? How do we figure out what's worth doing and what's not? How do we do something that matters? You know, we hear all the time about how we need to be conservationists, but what does that actually look like in real life? This is what I want us to explore today. And joining me for this conversation is T. Edward Nickens, more commonly known as Eddie Nickens. Now, Eddie's life, I think, is a perfect illustration of this lifestyle we're trying to put a finger on. Want to understand what it looks like to live a life dedicated to hunting? and fishing, and conservation, look no further than Eddie Nickens. Eddie's a longtime outdoor writer with much of his work focused on conservation-related issues. 
He's been prominently featured in magazines from Field and Stream to Garden and Gun to Audubon and the Smithsonian. He's the author of The Best of the Total Outdoorsman, The Total Knife Manual, and recently the phenomenal collection of hunting and fishing essays, The Last Wild Road. On top of that, he's also a national board member for backcountry hunters and anglers. More importantly, though, this is a guy who just absolutely loves to hunt, fish, and recreate outside. And he, he's done a ton of it. He spends his life doing these kinds of things. And he's also thought long and hard about how he can work to keep these opportunities around. But he's not just thought about it. He's actually gone ahead and taken the many small steps necessary to try to make this a reality. In short, I think from what I see, from what I've read, from what I'm picking up from him, I think he's found a way to incorporate this this idea of a conservation ethic into his daily life. This is the terrain we're setting forth into now. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Eddie Nickens. All right, here with me now on the line is Eddie Nickens. Eddie, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Mark. Thanks a bunch. I really appreciate you uh, making the time to do this. You've, uh, you know, like I mentioned before we started recording, I've been reading your work for years and years and years now, like so many other people, and uh, it's just a real treat to get to finally talk to you in person and uh, and kind of pick your brain. So thanks for making the time to do this. Yeah, and I appreciate you not saying that you've been reading my work for decades and decades, which could have, could have been the, could have been the case, but let's not go there quite yet. Yeah. I don't want to date you too much there, but, uh, but yes, I, uh, I don't know what year it was that your first articles in field and stream came out, but I know it's been a long time ago and, and I was picking them up back in, Oh, probably the mid nineties is when I probably was paging through those first issues when I was seven or eight, maybe. Um, so I know you've been putting your imprint on that magazine for a long time and continue to and many other places. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of, of the written word and the way you've done it. So uh, I, I won't, I'll try not to nerd out on the writing thing, though, because there's a lot of people out there that probably aren't as interested in the craft of writing as I am. So I won't get into that, but I will get into the topic of your writing, Eddie, um, since everyone listening is into hunting and fishing in the outdoors. But I guess that, that kind of sets up the first thing I was curious about because you've done you've done a whole lot over the years, Eddie. You've you've written, of course, in a number of different formats, but you've also done videos and some digital stuff and, and TV hosting and whatnot. So so I'm curious about this, Eddie. When you're at a dinner party, let's say, and you meet somebody new and they ask you, you know, Eddie, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that question to a new person who who doesn't have any context, who's not a hunter or angler like you are necessarily? How do you how do you approach that one? Yeah, that's an interesting an interesting point. Uh, with a with an obvious answer, Mark. I like um, that's what I consider my job and my craft. Uh, and my, uh, that's who I am. Um, and so you know, I don't say I'm an outdoor writer. Um, I, I'm, I'm a writer and I, I do make a part of my living doing other things, although it all tends to be 
centered on some sort of word expression, whether it's video or script writing or, but I'm a writer and that's what I say. Um, and you know, the reaction to that is, well, you know, well, what do you write? And then we'll, we'll, we'll go into hunting and the fishing and the outdoor travel. But, you know, I, I tell people that I just, I love stories, meaningful stories. And they just happen to be, they happen to be told through the lens of, of hunting and fishing. Um, and that kind of takes us into some interesting conversations from there, as you can imagine, but mm-hmm. that's, that's what I am. I am a writer and there've been times when I, over the last, certainly with the digital revolution, um, if I wanted to be something different, but man, I've come back to, I think that's what I'm put on this, put on this planet for is to string words together. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to indulge myself here a minute, Eddie, and everybody else listening will have to bear with me. Uh, but you're, you're a storyteller, you're a writer, but, but like you said, you tell, you tell good stories, you enjoy good stories, you enjoy the craft of good stories. So Eddie, what, what makes a good story? Hmm. What makes a story that, that I want to tell, I guess I, I'll answer maybe that question is a story that is sort of larger, self, sort of larger than the sum of its parts. Um, for, for some reason, I'm drawn to everyday scenes. I've done a lot of adventure travel. I, I love that and, and still, still do remote places and, and sort of out of the way spots, but man, I'm, I'm drawn, drawn to those moments when you're, when you're in the water and small happens that you realize is just the point of it all. Um, and I think folks have noticed that I've, I've had great reaction from readers who've, who've responded positively to these, these small moments that just stick with you. Um, so how, how the everyday sort of resonates and amplifies I mean, the everyday in terms of a, you know, an, an ordinary hunt, an ordinary sit in a tree stand, what makes, what makes it so extraordinary beyond, beyond just the privilege of being, of being able being able to do that. I, I remember I wrote this piece, I called it planet tree stand and it, it all turned on a moment when my daughter was sitting with me in the tree stand and she, and she laid her head on my shoulder and I thought, Oh my God, you know, we're here. All physically removed. And this moment of, connection with this little eight or nine year old girl and everything that was going on around that from bonding with your child, from introducing them to the outdoors. I don't know. I I don't know if I look for those moments, Mark, but they just, they, I just know when it happens. Um, and that's, that's what I like to, to write about. If you've been, if you go, if you travel with me much at all, 
you will you will see these times happen when I just check out and I grab a pen or and a pad and sit down on a rock or by the by the stream or on a cooler seat in the skiff and and I'm just writing I'm just writing furiously because it's just I know that this is something's happened. Something's that's happened. that's fascinating. I was I was curious if you could recognize those moments in real time or if it was only later when you sit back down at your desk and you think back over your last week that all of a sudden you recognize these moments of of universal experience or something. So so that's interesting to hear you can that you're kind of tuned into it even in the moment. Yeah, I think it does happen in, in the moment. Now I am I am very very fortunate to write for magazines that committed are committed to good writing and, and pay for good writing. So on the back end of that, you know, a week or two or three months later, you know, if it takes me if it takes me six hours to craft a paragraph, I, I feel like I can do it. And so that's a that's a rare thing. That's a blessing. And I applaud my editors and and bosses for for giving me that for giving me that space. But it, it does frequently happen in the moment. I've traveled a lot with my son, particularly Jack, and 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 he, he knows. Uh and he'll he'll sort of tell people, just, you know, writer, just just let him just let him be, leave him alone, let him do his thing. Just bear with him uh, here. He's having a moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. And uh I, I had a paddling buddy, Scott Wood, and we all over the place, Alaska and Labrador and Quebec and these long canoe trips. And even he knew. Um I'd always have to paddle in the bow because at, at any moment, water, white water, water he knew, I might put the paddle down and start to scribble. One. So uh, <laughs> it's fun to see it. It's fun to see it happen. Yeah. That's the, that's the great thing about being a writer is that every moment in life has the potential to be a story, a potential to be material. Uh, it's, it just seems to be a matter of having your eyes open to it. At least that's something I've kind of learned as I've gotten deeper into this is, is just trying to maintain a sense of awareness about everything going on around you because there's, there's material there if you're open to it. Um, but speaking of, speaking of stories, before I go too far down this whole <laughs> rabbit hole of, of writing and storytelling, which I'm personally fascinated in, uh, I do want to, I want to shift towards the, the main reason why I wanted to chat with you, Eddie. And, and we talked about this earlier. It's this idea of, of how to live a life in which you not only enjoy the natural world as a hunter or angler, but but how do you live a life in which you can reciprocate that enjoyment uh, in a way? And and I read a story of yours the other day, and I wanted to read an excerpt from that story and then kind of get your thoughts on this because I, I think it, it nicely ties into what I want to get at here. Uh, this story of yours, I think this is in your new book, The Last Wild Road, which is a collection of your your stories and essays over the years, which is tremendous. Um, you were talking about this invitation you got from a friend to go fish the best cutthroat stream in America. And your friend took you there. He swore you to secrecy. And you ended up having a fishing trip that lived up to the hype. At the end of the story, as you're hiking out, I think, you described this. You said... 
I tried to parse my sense of near euphoria. It wasn't that I caught the largest cutthroat I'd ever seen. It wasn't that I proved myself tough enough to get into a rough place and fish well and get back out again, even if I limped that last mile to the truck. It was that my friend found me worthy of his spot and trustworthy of his secret. He was willing to take the chance and take me there and know that I would walk out and speak little of the details of that valley and bury the memory of the trail deep and burn the shovel. Forget the photos and the fishtails. He knew I'd never forget what was most worth remembering, that a place like that still exists. The fact that those places still exist today, Eddie, what does that, what does that mean to you? How much does that matter? Well, you know, I remember, I remember that, um, very, very well, you know, it, it, all the difference, all the difference, Mark, and and I'm going to circle back in a moment to what we were talking about earlier about the, the more mundane aspects, more everyday, because a lot of what really matters is how we respond to a place, you know, whether it's your back 40 or whether it's the back of the beyond, as this, as this place was, but what, what matters, I think looking, looking at it point of 35 years of riding and working in conservation is that these places, they're not there by accident. They're not still untrammeled places by, by accident. There was, it was thought there was a cost, um, Society was willing to bear that cost at great at great cost. The Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is home to some fabulous brook trout fishing, there were I, I, there were hundreds and hundreds of people who were forcibly moved from those mountains to create that national park that we that we just think was just always there in the wild. And I have I have interviewed old old women who remember their mothers having the front porch rails of their little shacks in the Smokies as the sheriffs were literally pulling them off of their porches to evict them so we could have this wild place. Now, I'm not saying we should, we should do that. I'm not saying it was right. I'm not saying it was wrong. I'm just saying that America has shown itself capable of great sacrifice for wild places. And now we want them at no cost, at no inconvenience to anyone. But we don't we don't realize what it took to to set these side to set aside these places. And so when I go to a place like that stream, um when I hear of other people who go to places that are just still so wild. The first thing that, that comes to my mind was we all we all paid for that. America paid for that. Society paid for that. And what are we willing what are we willing to do now? You know, what are we, what cost are we willing to bear no matter what that cost looks like, whether it's more taxes, whether it's funding, whether it's a social cost. What are, what are we willing to do to to keep these places wild? Because they all came initially at a, at a cost. Yeah. Yeah. I like, uh, I like the point I heard you make 
Well, you made a you made a point just now about it's it's not necessarily how wild a place is, but more how the the place, however far it is off the pavement, impacts you. And and I've heard you in the past talk about how you know how we might go about defining backcountry in different ways. While somebody in Montana might define their backcountry as eight miles off the road, someone maybe in you know urban Michigan, closer to where I live, might be. 80 paddle strokes down the river and they have that that feeling that sense of being away from it all and how each of those things is awfully valuable in its own way um but but i agree with you that it is uh it's it's vital that we still have those wild places in whatever form we need them but i'm curious you having been around this now for decades eddie and paying attention to these places and and the costs that were required to have these places. How confident are, are you, given what we've seen in recent years, given the trajectory we might be able to forecast looking into the future, how confident are you that we'll still have places like that for, let's say, your potential grandkids someday? I mean, I'm, I'm starting to think about that. I have two young children of my own, and I'm looking at what are the, what will they still have? What opportunities will they still have? Will they still have that incredible secluded valley to hike into? Will they still have that river that's clean and accessible for them to paddle down someday? Um, how do you feel about what this world might look like 20, 30 years from now for your kids and their families? You know, it's not a yes answer i mean the answer is only if only only if generation and the next generations put their shoulders into the same traces that the earlier generations did you know only if we're willing to work work for that um and the challenges the challenges are great, but they were, you know, they were great. They were great in the 19 teens and twenties and thirties, you know, when the Southern Appalachians were clear cut where, when, you know, every duck and shorebird coming down the Atlantic coast was, was imperiled. They either be sold in a market or put on a lady's hat. So we, we've had giant, enormous landscape scale challenges in the, in the past. Um, and we certainly have them, in the future. And, and I think looking at what's happened in the last five or 10 years with an upswelling of, of new voices, of new energy, of new passion that are willing to, willing to work wild places, you know, willing to, to write their legislators, willing to get out there and pick up trash and pick up the slack and fund organizations. I, you know, you have to have, you know, it's, you have to be an optimist. You have to be, you have to have that, that feeling that there's, there's positive movement. And I mean, there is, there's, there's great positive. I mean, you, I'm a, I'm a huge supporter and a North American board member of backcountry hunters and anglers. And that's only one organization that is out there, uh, you know, stemming the stemming the rising tide against our public lands and and public wildlife. So I am uh, I am hopeful that the daunting task 
um, because pessimism is gonna will just suck will suck the gas the gas tank dry. So we just we just can't be pessimistic. We, we have to be we have to be optimistic. And looking at looking at the the new generation, you know, my kids are 22, my son's 22, my daughter's 25, um, and they're great kids and they are involved and active. I know we hear a lot about Gen X and Gen Z and millennials and, and whatever, but man, my kids and their, and their peers, they're, they're not going to sit by and let the world go to hell. Um, they're, they're out there doing, doing their part and they've got tools that, that, that we didn't have. Um, so I do think, Kids and my grandkids are going to have these are going to have these wild places. Maybe not as many, um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I hope that view of public lands that we're seeing now, there, there's not a lot more land that can be public domain. But I'm I'm hopeful that we haven't seen the last wild places. Uh, put into put into public ownership so you just can't you can't stop you just can't mark you can't give up and you can't give up hope so that that's where i that's where i am with it but i do i do feel positive when i see folks the younger generations coming up they're smart they're committed they're passionate um, and they're gonna they're gonna make an impact. Yeah. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. 
Heart and Soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. You know, it's, it's, it's true. I agree with you. There's, there's definitely this, this swell of enthusiasm and, and youth starting to care about these things. And I was kind of curious about where that, where that comes from for people. I I mean, for, for myself, you know, I, I didn't have parents or anyone who was preaching to me the value of these places, or maybe they weren't preaching to me that I needed to take action, that I needed to be a conservationist that I needed to care about environmental causes or or the or our public lands and access to them all that kind of stuff but they did they did instill in me this sense of respecting nature and respecting wildlife and taking care of those things we had um, and, and treating the world with with care and respect so I so I had that but it wasn't for you know many many years later of being a hunter and angler and, and kind of you know consuming and taking and just wanting to, you know, being out there, being a fun hog, I guess you could say. It took me till I was, you know, in my early 20s. And as I got deeper and deeper into hunting, I was discovering, you know, books like a Sand County Almanac or reading something or uh, whatever it might be. I kind of had this, this slow realization that if I was going to keep on enjoying these places and these these wildlife and, and these experiences out there, that if I was going to take and take and take, I better start giving, giving, giving back. Um, but that took me a long time to to get there. I'm just curious for you, Eddie. What did that look like for you? Did you, can you recall when that shift happened for you, or, or was it from day one that you were thinking about these things? Was there a moment, like a light switch moment, where you all of a sudden started to look at this differently? What was that that story like for you? You know, it was a it was an evolution to yours, Mark. Not on the same, not on the same track. Uh, I didn't grow up in a fishing family. And I've, I've told this story a number of times before. Um, although early on, I was infatuated with hunting and fishing, and I'd never even met a hunter. I'd never even seen a gun. Um, but, you know, read the magazines, Field and Stream, and Sports of Fields, and Outdoor Life. And it, 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 it wasn't until my – and I wanted to hunt and fish so badly. I remember on a family trip mountains, and my family did camp. Um, my brother and I were laying in the back of, of the family's 1973 Ford Pinto station wagon. You didn't have to have seat belts. You could lay back there and, you know, make jokes and point at this and that. And I looked out and there was a, we were, we were driving through the country, we were driving down the interstate, we were driving through the country, and I, and I saw a tree stand wearing a, wearing a blaze orange vest, just a teeny little pinprick. And I, rem, I remember asking myself, will I ever hunt? I could see no pathway to that. Would would that 
ever be experience. I remember that clearly. And so when my father died and a, a friend from church took me under his wing and introduced me to this world, what, what I recall belief that it had happened. Utter disbelief that I was now a hunter. And I'll, I'll be honest, that level of attitude and gratefulness and, and still disbelief, I still feel today, Mark, when I, I look at aspects of my life, when I look at the career that I've had, it's this feeling of, holy crap, how, how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> and so... <laughs> My uh, my approach to conservation, born from that feeling of, of gratitude, um, and being so incredibly lucky to be here, that I wanted to make sure I did nothing to tarnish that heritage. Um, and I was interested in history, and so I threw myself into the history of conservation, the history of colonial natural history in the United States. And so I, mine came from a different place. It, it evolved into this generalized awareness of conservation movement and activism and advocacy and how we pull the levers of power in this country. But it was rooted in this just cannot freaking believe I get to do what I, what I can do as a career, you know, but as an everyday hunter and angler, everybody should have that feeling. Everybody should feel like, holy moly, I get to do this. Yeah. You know, I'm not in the King's woods. Yeah. I get to do this. And if you approach it from that perspective of gratitude, how could, how could you, how could you not do anything but want to perpetuate that kind of wonder and awe for the next generation? Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty a pretty remarkable uh inheritance, I think, that we that we have to enjoy here now. And and that 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 idea of of wanting to perpetuate it, I think that is something that's shared by many, many people these days. Um but I think what is um, what's the common reaction to that once we once someone has this realization of sorts where they realize, oh wow, this is this thing that was very costly for us to to have, whether it be public lands or thriving wildlife populations or clean rivers, whatever it might be. I, I think we I've seen and heard and talked to so many people that you know, get to whatever point in their life it is where they realize, oh, wow, this is a privilege that we have. They recognize that and they realize that it requires work and care to, to maintain that. You get this very common next question, which is, well, what in the world can I do about it? How do I, how do, I do something about it? I mean, this, uh, this just never seems to be a question that's going to go away. We hear about some new crisis. We hear about the next problem we hear about the the umpteenth example of something going down the tube and you sit there and you worry about it or you 
you you look down at your feet and you you you're bummed about it, but then you think to yourself, what could I possibly do to make a difference about it as a just a little old me? Um how did you how did you approach that early on in your life when you when you first started diving into this history and learning about you know environmental activism and, and the people that came before us earlier in your career as you started exploring these questions and these obligations, maybe we could say, how did you try to tackle this at that point in your life? I'm curious to kind of compare how your first steps might have been different than maybe what you are thinking and, and actions are now, if, if at all. Um, how did you first approach that? Man, that's a good one. Um, I think initially, that the first great act of change is do no harm. I don't know that I could have articulated it early on, but, but I, I do remember that early on, obeying the law, following the rules, whether you agreed with them or not, was it was just important to me. And that was that was drilled into me by by my mentor Keith Gleason. He he I don't know that, that Keith as much as I did at one point about the history of conservation law and all that, but he knew that that limits, that regulations, that ethics, they were there for a reason. He was a very disciplined human being, and he 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 did instill did instill that into me. And, and I kind of I was brought up in that excuse me that old school way of. I remember the first time he asked me to go squirrel hunting. I thought, hot damn, you know, I'm going to just rain, rain lead on these squirrels. And, you know, he never, of course, he never even let me touch a gun. You know, it was <laughs> three or four weeks or, you know, they had to go through this process. And, you know, and wow. That was, that was, a, that was a great, a great lesson. Um, so doing no harm, I think, is the first thing we can do. That and that means you know, obeying every single game and fish law, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with them or not, whether you think they're stupid or not. They're there, there for a reason, a scientific reason, but they're there for another reason, which is side rails on our behavior, so we know when we've stepped over the line. And so, you know, I was, I was. Give, I got caught grief about this all my life. Not, you know, I'm not shooting at the time dove limits were 12. I'm not shooting. I'm not shooting 13. I just, I just wasn't going to do it. I have a good excuse now. If I, you know, if we get <laughs> yeah. caught, if you get caught. If I get caught, this, this, no, it's, it's no yeah. good, but I'm not even tempted. Trespassing. Good. I mean, I'm, you know, I was brought up a good, a good boy from the South. I would not, you know, when I went to North Dakota, freelance duck hunting, I still, son and I went, and we still could not bear to step on a piece of unposted land that we knew we had legal access to without asking, without asking for permission. We just couldn't bring ourselves, we couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Uh, and so I think that's part of it, Mark, is 
we all have to we have to do no harm. We have to we have to make sure that nobody ever says, "Ah, yeah, you know, he's a that that guy. He, you know, he jack lights at night. We we know that 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 would undo every every positive thing he did." I say that's the that's the starting point, but we we've, we've got to have these new hunters coming in our fold, which is fabulous. It's even a more incumbent upon us to set that good example because they they don't know you know they don't they don't know why you have to plug your shotgun for for three shots when you're hunting migratory birds um they don't know what the pittman robertson act is and why that is so critical to the nature to the country's environmental infrastructure um and so i I think it's now kind of incumbent on all of us to be to be those kinds of teachers and, and mentors and, and, and good examples. Um, and I, I think if you're not willing to do that, you shouldn't be in this game. Mm. I think we've gotten to that point. If you're not willing to be a positive influence, you don't need to be in this game. I 100% agree with that. Uh, it, and it, it comes back to, um, and it's something that I've, brought up a couple times recently i read this book a few weeks ago or a month or so now ago called braiding sweetgrass and the author was speaking of this um this idea this philosophy of of reciprocity with the natural world um that had come from her background as a, as a native american and this idea of of giving back of of if we're going to take something we need to give back in equal and uh and i feel like that's that's a perfect example of what you're talking about um and and something that i just think about a whole lot more now than i ever used to and and maybe it's just because i have been able to enjoy so many more of these things as i uh as i learn more and explore more and, and now having kids and thinking about all that too um but I, I guess that next thought then is if, if the starting point is being, you know, do, doing no harm yourself, doing the right things, um, following the law, and then next is, is helping other people, mentoring other people, being a good example for other people, helping educate folks, um, helping other people experience these special places. Um, and you've been doing that for years and years and years now. What, what's that? What's the graduate level work now that you are that you've experienced now over the years now having been within this world and caring about these things for a long time now what's what's it look like to be a hunter and angler and conservationist in real life in addition to what you just described i mean what what kinds of things over the course of a year Eddie do you do that are inspired by this this uh this 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 care and, and cause that you now seemingly have a life revolved around. I'm I don't want to tout BHA too much here, Mark, but that that's where a lot of my a lot of my time and effort and sort of psychic energy go right now, um, because I do think that I do think that group. Uh, has its finger on the on the pulse of something that's super important and super timely. Um, so I think I think the answer is going to differ for for different 
different people. I was I was in Louisiana. Several buddies of mine a couple months ago fly fishing for for big bull drum in the marshes. And I was on I was on a I was on a skiff with a friend who has done pretty well. Um, got some resources, and he asked me. He said, "I write you know a twenty five dollar check to fifteen organizations. Some of them I write a hundred dollars. That that was his involvement. And he his question was similar to your question. He asked me. He said, "Is that is that what I should be doing? Is that a useful way?" of spending my tithe back to the conservation world. And my response to him was, absolutely, that's a, that's a great way to, to, to be involved. I said, but you know, you may want to think about one or two groups that really tick off the boxes for you, that are really close to your heart. And maybe you ought to think about having a larger impact there. Drive that area deeper. Um, and you know, and that was the, that was the end of the conversation. And then four or five days later, he sent me a copy of his, uh, life membership to BHA. Now I'm not, I'm not saying this to underscore BHA. I'm saying this to underscore how one person was thoughtful and intentional and took the next step. Not, not that everybody wants to be a life member of an organization or can afford to be a life member of an organization. But these days, man, you can't swing a cat without hitting a, an opportunity to go pick up trash at a wildlife management area or go clean out a boat ramp or uh, go work on a TU project or store a stream. So, you know, there's really no, there's no excuse anymore for not being able to to get involved either at the hands, you know, get your fingernails dirty level or more of what I do, which is sort of working on policy and working on larger national issues with, with BHA, um, writing about wetlands conservation for, for Ducks Unlimited. So I think, I think it's a great time to be alive, so to speak in that vein. I mean, you, you could spend, you can spend every waking hour volunteering for a valuable conservation project in, in the hunting and fishing sphere. So we're very, very fortunate in that regard. What's that been like for you, Eddie, since uh, since getting more involved with BHA and, of course, being on the board? I'm sure there's a lot of people who have who have thought to themselves, well, I wonder if I should you know, take a larger role with an organization that I'm a member of. Maybe I could be a chapter leader or be the secretary on my state board or – get involved with in this kind of leadership position or that leadership position or, or any kind of next level like that. How, how has that been for you? How has that impacted how you look at these things and, and your, your impact? Yeah, well, I'm secretary of the committee and board of directors for North American BHA. So as far as being secretary of a local chapter, I would say, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> noted. Duly noted. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, people will tell you it's just a lot of fun. You know, you know, these days, these groups are rod and gun clubs of, of you know, uh, these are the groups where you meet tribe where you meet like-minded folks and you start off working on a 
conservation issue or a, or a, or a, a landscape that needs restoration or repair, but you end up just making great friends. Um, so I would encourage anybody to look up to look to look for that. But you know, I think we all have something specific table. Um, when Land Tawney asked me to join the BHA board, what's that been? Almost seven years ago, I was the, I believe I was the first, I'm pretty sure I was the first from East, from the Eastern United States. And I had worked with land before at the National Wildlife Federation on some sporting outreach. And that was intentional on his point. It was intentional for me to, 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 to see that there was a role I could play in bringing a different perspective to that to that quickly growing group. Um, and so that, that was, that was my strength. You know, my strength is, is not fundraising. Uh, you know, I'm an English major. So my strength is not anything to do with having a hammer in my hand. Um, but asking yourselves, you know, what, what can you, what can you bring to the table? Maybe it's a strong back and we need a lot of strong backs. Maybe it's a strong mind and we, we need a lot of strong minds. What, what we just need are more people on this train. The more people on this train, the better. What what have you what have you found? You know, as you've gotten, uh, as you've you mentioned, you made a great point. How this is that opportunity to, to kind of engage and find your tribe, right? It's it's not just work; it's also fun, but it gets you around like minded people, people that um, people that care about the same things you care about. What have you learned from those people inside your tribe that you've now gotten more engaged with through BHA in, in your example? Um, it could be any other organization for someone else, but what's that been like for you? Have, have your eyes been opened to anything? Have you been inspired by these people in some new way? Is there is there anything that now, years later, you've discovered that you didn't know or hadn't experienced before taking that next step? I had no idea, Mark, how many people were willing to work so hard for this. I mean, work so hard for this. We we started the North Carolina State Chapter of BHA on my back deck at my house, and it was six of us. None of us knew anybody else in the group. We were totally each other. Not a single relationship existed. And to see that group, the the tens of hours, the hundreds of hours, each one of them has put in to that state chapter. And again, this isn't about BHA. This is about a willingness to put your, your shoulder to the work. I, I have been astonished at the level of commitment. And this, this goes back to our earlier conversation about where my optimism comes from. I mean, it doesn't come from politicians and politics. It, it comes from people who are willing to do the work, man, who have heard the trumpet call. And I mean, I've been involved in this, involved in this all my life practically. And I, I did not have, I did not realize how, how deep those passions ran, how much people were willing to put on the line. Um, I follow a group in Florida called Captains for Clean Waters, mm-hmm. which is started by two two captains, uh, Chris Whitman and Daniel Andrews, who were nearly lost their well, they, they 
pretty much lost their, their livelihoods for two years in some of the worst algebraems down there. And to see what that group has been able to do when they went all in, all in for wildlife, wild places and hunting and fishing. It's, that's, what's, that's what's been inspiring. That, that's why I do, and it is, I choose to be optimistic. I could choose to be pessimistic, Mark, and where would that, what, what would that do? That would yeah. do nothing. So it is a choice, and I choose to be optimistic, and I choose to remain involved, and I choose to work. And and honestly, I am, and <laughs> people who know me well would say, I don't say this very often, or I don't really mean it when I do say it, but I mean it this time. <laughs> I am humbled by the amount of work that other people do, the amount of time and energy dwarfs what I mean. I mean, I could give you a list of, Many men and women in North Carolina, y'all to be talking to other other kid with Nickens, but yeah. man, it is that adds fuel to the fire to see it. That's why I'm optimistic. Yeah, I love that. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Uh, so uh, yeah, here's something I'm, I'm wondering about, and I think a lot of people wonder about, because there are a lot of other folks, like you mentioned, who are willing to do the work, who are willing to sweat, bleed, whatever has to be done to, to make a difference. Uh, a lot of people, though, are pulled in a lot of different directions. 
many, many different obligations, uh, many, many different folks emailing them or texting them or posting on Facebook saying, help this cause, help this cause, help this cause, right? Um, I think one of the thing I, one thing I worry about a lot these days is people just becoming fatigued by all the different yeah. issues they're being pummeled with over the head and told, do this, do this, help us, help us. And, and many, many, many of those are great, great causes, things that really do need help. But I worry people will become overwhelmed or just shut off because they are, you know, just flooded with it. Um, what I'm, what I'm getting at though is what I'm curious about is, I think many people wonder how can they best utilize their time? Like what's the most, what's the highest ROI on their efforts? And given your vantage point being involved at the national level of BHA, I'm sure you've, you and the team there have spent a lot of time looking at and considering and looking at the data around, okay, what's the action that, that that makes the most difference? What's the thing that really, really, you know, dials up the pressure on a, on a congressman or woman or something like that. I mean, when you when you look at that, whatever review you guys have been able to do over the years, is there anything that has stood out to you and the rest of the board as far as the impact that you know tweets versus phone calls versus letters versus showing up in person versus any other thing like that? Have you guys found something or some series of actions that are the most uh, impactful when it comes to that kind of uh, participation? What we've found is that engagement matters. Um, they personally surprising to me, and we have at BHA been scientific about crunching this data and figure out which levers work the best and, and when and how. And, and I've been even surprised at how much phone calls and emails and personal communications to legislators matter. Um, that's been that's been a that's been a big surprise. Um, I think hunters and anglers particularly uh, get frustrated dealing with state agencies at the game and fish level um, when they go to public hearings about regulations. Um, and and I understand that, um, but we can't let that frustration make us sit on our hands. You know, any engagement is better than no engagement, but, but, but being strategic about and being very personal when you contact your legislators um, and representatives is, is important. And it, and it, makes, it makes a difference. It, ab- it absolutely makes a difference. Um, but, man, there's no, there's no doubt. I mean, that, that is frustrating, you know, to send something off into the ether and think your senator is going to, you know, be sitting there with his or her feet up on our desk and read it, and it's going to change their mind. I don't know that it works that way, but that public in that public input completely works. And, and, and I think the other thing that we're finding out with with BHA analyzing this data and looking strategically at what works in the landscape is to actually start thinking bigger and, and, and broader. We're experiencing this in in North Carolina. Uh, where we have been dealing with this trickle of losing access to public trout waters in the mountains. And it's nothing catastrophic every year, but it's, you know, it's a quarter mile here, Mark. It's access there. It's a, it's a boat ramp there. And, and, and we've been trying to figure out how do we 
how do we stop that? How do we turn that around? And we've been we've been looking at the at the micro level of this boat ramp or this landowner, what what we can do. Um, and we're starting to realize that we need to we need to move to the forest service level. We need to we need to be advocating in Atlanta at the regional office as much as we're advocating in Asheville, North Carolina at the at the at the at the smaller office. So I think we're starting to get more politically savvy. We're starting to get more plugged into how to make how to make a difference. But the most important thing is just to get off your hands and, and not sit on them and 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 be involved. And we all have our strengths. You know, I'm pretty good at writing letters. <laughs> I might not be so great at, at, at other things, but just be involved. I mean, it, it sounds so trite and so simple, but I, I see what happens. I've seen it in North Carolina. I've seen it across the country. I've seen it with BHA. I've seen it with Ducks and Lynn. I've seen it with TU. Once you put your foot in the road of, of working for wildlife, man, it's not, it's not long before you're running a full sprint. Yeah. It's easy to do that when you have such a, such an awesome thing to be fighting for, something we love so much. Um, that's the that's one thing we've really got going for us. There's a whole lot of different political causes and things out there that people get fired up about, but uh, I can't think of many others that are so darn rewarding just to be a part of it that we love so much. Uh, I don't know anyone who really, really, really loves, I don't know, healthcare. But uh, I know there's a whole lot of us that absolutely love sitting in a tree and watching a whitetail go by or standing in a river and watching a trout sipping on a mayfly. Um, that That's pretty darn uh, motivating to get out there and try to make sure you can keep doing those things. But And, man, pe- and people want it so badly, Mark. Man, I was speaking at an event in South Carolina, the Southeastern Wildlife Exhibition, a few weeks ago. And at the end of at the end of the talk, this, this dude walks up and hands in line, you know, at the end, waits his turn to chat. And he's just like he he he's never hunted, he's never fished. He wants it so bad. He has no clue. He has no one in his life. This fellow is, you know, in his late twenties, you know, had disposable income, educated, articulate. No way to get into it. So I hooked him up with a with the local chapter of BHA down in down in the southeast. But there's when you see someone like that who wants what you ha- who wants to experience what you can experience in the back country or you know just on the local farm pond, they want it so bad. We we've got to figure out a way to to feed those people to get them to get them inside our inner circle. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a little of a of a a left turn here, Eddie, but you bring up this fact that there are so many people out there who are interested in getting involved in this space that we occupy and that we've been able to enjoy over the years. Um, but there's a little bit of a, um, I'm sure you've, you've seen it, you've heard, you've, you've heard people talk about this or seen the articles over the last year or so, especially since COVID just this significant influx of users on our public lands and some folks saying, hey, you know, forget this whole hunter recruitment thing. There's too many people out there as it is. Or there's folks bemoaning, changing, you know, out-of-state tag lotteries and stuff. And out-of-staters are flooding our states. So, you know, Wyoming's 
cutting down on their, you know, uh, non-resident tags and Idaho's doing this and so on and so forth. All these things pointing to, you know, there's, there's too many people. Let's stop trying to bring folks into the fold. Uh, what's your response to that sentiment that seems to be popping up here and there now, maybe more so than it was in recent years? Man, it's real. It's as real as earlier today. I was trying to find a campsite. Tetons National Park this summer which is a joke, a laughter. There's no way. Um, it, it's a, and it's some, so it's something that affects us all. Uh, oh, man. It is a tough one. Do we really need more duck hunters on Jordan Lake and the Piedmont of North Carolina? No. And the ducks don't need it either. Um, but the reality is, I don't know that we can turn this way. Um, it, it seems to me that the that the enormous surge during COVID that was driven by and the need for folks to get outdoors that that I don't think was driven by the R three movement and the proactive ways that the hunting and fishing industry has gone about uh, its outreach programs. So whether those folks decide, you know, maybe the backcountry is not the place for them or not, I, I don't know. I, I think right now we need to sort of hold our breath and hold our tongues maybe um, and, until we can figure out how to manage this, this surge. Cause I don't think anybody, no, nobody saw it coming and and I think we're having, as an industry or, or as a as a body of of public land users, um, there's there's a little bit of shock to the system right now. I I think, and it's not just in the West; it's in the East, and it, I mean it's everywhere. Um, so we're we're going to have to figure out the future may very well look different from the past on you, some famous western trout rivers that may look different than the, the past on southeastern coastal waterfowl marshes um but bringing educated uh, and i don't mean school educated but but bringing in folks and educating them on the history of conservation and the role of hunting and fishing in the american wildlife movement that's that's got to be a part of the solution it's got to be a part of the solution. Now, I I follow your logic on that, but there might be some people who don't, who don't see or maybe who haven't heard the explanation for why that's important. Can you just run us through, simply put, why it is a good thing, why we could use some more folks as a part of this community that understand what's going on, that participate? In your mind, what's, what's in it for us to to advocate for more of that? Well, wildlife constituency, public lands need constituency. They need people who are going to speak up for public lands and public wildlife, and not just public, but for private lands, for private wildlife initiatives. I mean, that's the, that's the argument, right? That's the only argument. Of course, you know, I want people to get to get the awe and the wonder that I get from the outdoors. 
I mean, I want everybody. Who, who wouldn't want neighbors not to not to feel that way? But look, I I get I get the I get the crowds. I get those issues. It's a it's a tough it's a tough place to be. Um, but they're they're here now. Important that we turn them into people who do no harm, and 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 we turn them into outdoor users who are proactive in protecting those landscapes. Um, and if we if we say you know no, you would put up these barriers and these fences and say, you know, sorry, we're closing the barn door. Um, we're going to turn those, I mean, we risk turning those folks you know, against the very values that we, that we hold dear. But it's, I mean, it's a tight rope. I'm, I'm not going to say it doesn't suck. Um, that, I mean, it does, you know, and it's a, it's a tough situation. And that's why I would just counsel holding your tongue and taking a step back and let's see how all this looks in a couple of years it may look very different yeah yeah you're it right may not but it, it may it may not um but we're not going to have fewer fewer people in the outdoors there's there's no question it, but you know what, what are we going what are we going to do about western trout fishing what are we going to do about you know the drift boat hatches yeah. on these rivers i mean these are these are serious these are serious issues and we're all and a lot of us myself included you know we've we've had a long span of time where things were fairly static i mean we've had more and more people in the outdoors it's been a going certainly in the in the in the trout fishing worlds um but i'm not sure those days are going to be are going to be back um, so we're we're gonna have to figure it out, and it might and it might be more regulation, more permitted days. Um, yeah, so and that's only one of the challenges. Yeah, we can talk climate change and weather patterns and urbanization, but we need to. I, I think to answer your question, we need to take a breath um, and see where the numbers fall in a year or two yeah. before we really make any decisions. So crowding of our wild places, whether it be public lands or even, you know, here in Michigan, all my buddies are constantly talking about how it's harder to get access to private land because the stuff they used to have knock on the door permission, you know, now is leased up or five other guys hunt it or whatever. So if it's overcrowding or access, or you mentioned, you know, a series of other things there, um, what is it that keeps you up at night looking forward? What concerns you? What issue or threat coming down the pipeline um, is most concerning to you when you look into the future as far as impacts on wildlife and, and wild places and the ability to hunt and fish? I, I think and boy, there's going to be a lot of folks that don't agree with me on this. The pressures of development and industrialization are so great that whatever is not behind 
held by the public um, is is going to be at greater and greater risk. So I'm an advocate for more public land. I'm an advocate for increasing acres, increasing. I mean, that's that's part of the solution to more and more people. So what what concerns me greatly is the divestiture of public lands, um, whether it's in the west or whether it's in the east. Uh, that's a that is a that's a huge concern. Um, if we had more where more people could roam more freely, it's a, it's just a win-win on a number of on a, on a number of categories, and this just takes us back to that conversation of what what are we as an American society willing to sacrifice? What are we literally willing to pay to increase the storehold of natural treasures that we have? So that's part of the, the solution. That's maybe a bit of a time sky mark, but that's one thing that I that I see. You know, the climate change. I, I spend a lot of time on the coast, and that's that's frightful as well. Um, but just having enough, having enough land to roam and appreciating that, that to me, that's the, that's one of the bigger issues. And it's one of the issues that I think we can, we can make some moves on. Yeah. Well, that, that simple idea of, of simply protecting more habitat addresses a lot of the impacts of all the other things, right? If, if we're talking climate change and warming waters or animals needing to change, you know, needing to migrate to different areas, well, having more land protected solves that. If we're talking about overcrowding, well, having more land solves that. Uh, if we're talking about impacts of overharvest or overfishing or industrialization or anything like that, well, more protected space helps with that. Um, but how? I think the question is like, how? It sounds pretty darn good. I mean, people talk about the the recent 30 by 30 uh, ideas and proposals, right? Trying to conserve 30% of our land by the year 2030. It sounds great in principle. I love the idea of it. Um, but how do we actually get there? Are you aware of any actual ideas or proposals or initiatives that people like us can get involved with to help make something like that happen? Well, those are big policy issues that are going to be driven at, at the higher levels. But but we, we do see some positive movement in that, you know, with the RAWA, with Recovering America's Wildlife Act, with um, Land Water Conservation Fund issues. We, we see people willing to step out on this on this funding side. Um, so, I, I, again, I. You asked what kept me up at night, and that's what kept me up at night. Um, I'm not sure that I know the solutions to to that, uh, other than to keep to keep chipping away at it. Um, and again, goes back to the do no harm. You know, every acre we we lost, we lose is two acres we have to gain just to take half a step forward. So protecting what we have is the first the first step of that but there have been there have been opportunities certainly on the state level uh in various states where there have been some increases in 
in public lands acquisitions. So working to identify those, getting involved in groups that are that are working to to advocate for those would be would be the first step. But it's a it's a it's a daunting it's a daunting task. But there's so much that we can do that's not daunting. There's so many, you know, we can get involved in so many other levels uh, and feel like we're making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, um, it, it makes me think of a piece I read of yours. Uh, you were writing, might've been earlier this year, or last year, you were writing about the recent die off of manatees in Florida which is just astounding. I think I, I saw recently that now it's a quarter of all manatees and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think 25% of all the manatees in Florida died over the last 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, within the space of a year, just shocking. And then, and there's, there's examples kind of like that all across the world, seemingly every day of something different like that, that's happening. It's, it can be, if you allow yourself to become negative and to get depressed, it really can take you there pretty quickly. Um, so you were, you were writing about this and you're, you're trying to process all that. And I want to quote another thing you wrote here because I, I found it pretty powerful. Uh, you wrote this, you said, speaking of Florida, what truly afflicts this incredible state is what afflicts us all. The 21st century version of apathy, our click through mentality, our tendency to breeze by and scroll through the ills of our time. I don't know how to heal Florida, but there are things I can do. Join, engage, write, lament. Uh, that really resonated with me. And I, I got to believe it resonates with a whole lot of other people. Um, what, what else would you add when it comes to battling this temptation of apathy to just scroll through and doom scroll through Instagram or Facebook and shake your head and say, God, this is the world's going to hell in a handbasket and then flip back on Netflix and keep watching the next episode of the office. Uh, what, what would you leave us with when it comes to avoiding that temptation and, and doing something different? Three easy words, Mark. Pisses you off the most? What impacts you the most? If every hunter and angler across the country, in every region, in every habitat type, answered that question for themselves and picked their fight and put their passion and their time and their resources into that one fight, it would it would turn the tide. It would eliminate and inoculate all of us if we pick the one fight. Wise words. Well, Eddie, I plan on trying to do just that. I appreciate everything you've shared, you know, over the years in your articles and taking the time here to chat with me about, about all this. It's, um, it's encouraging to to be able to look to someone like you as a model for for what we can all do in our own lives. And uh, man, I just uh, I appreciate it. Can you? Well, those are those are overly kind words, Mark. And I appreciate you doing all that you have to bring these issues to to the forefront. Well, thank you, thank you for that as well. I, I got to give you an opportunity though here. 
Eddie, to to tell folks about your book, which came out, I guess it was last fall, maybe. Um, can you tell folks a little bit more about this book that I've I've quoted a couple times here now, and I've been reading it. I've read your articles over the years that many of them are featured in here. I've picked up new ones now since I'm reading the physical copy, but tell us a little bit more about The Last Wild Road and where folks can can pick this up and, and dive further into these experiences that have that have formed you and inspired this, this land ethic that you have. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. The last wild road came out in May, uh, published by lions press. And it's a collection of five stories that I've published in field and stream over the last 18 years or so. And I'm, so about half of those pieces are my short columns. Uh, I had a column that has, that runs in every issue of the magazine for the last 12 years. Uh, the rest of the content are long or long features. Um, Colin Kearns, the editor in chief of Field of Stream, and I worked worked really hard. We're very very proud of that book. Um, there's a lot of really personal stories in there. A lot of adventure stories. But some of the pieces that you quoted, Mark, are you know examples of those moments where I've just been sort of awestruck by my place in this in this industry, by the experiences I've had. But a lot of the stuff is back forty far off the highway places and and experiences that that a lot of hunters and anglers have it just give them they give them a lot of fuel so uh, it's available on amazon it's about i've seen it in bookstores all over the place so yeah grab a copy and take a read last wild road it's good stuff i highly recommend it to to anyone listening if you if you need to escape from the drudgery of the office or your cold winter uh backyard or wherever it is is ailing you right now this is a great way to to get out there and, and hunt and fish through the page. And uh, you do a great job of transporting us all there. So I hope there's, I hope there's future books in your future, Eddie, because I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, I think there will be. Thanks. Thanks very much for the kind words. And with that, Eddie, I will shut this down and let you get back to whatever fun outdoor activities you've got coming down the line for yourself. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate it very much so. All right, so there you have it. As I mentioned already, be sure to pick up a copy of Eddie's book, The Last Wild Road. I mean, it's 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 great. And then from there, man, let's get to work. Let's work to do no harm. Let's try to reduce our waste. Let's consume a little bit less. Let's be a good example. Let's mentor others. Let's teach our friends and family about the outdoors. Let's get involved with some local conservation organizations. And then let's also try to be active with national issues and legislation. Let's write letters and make the phone calls when we're called upon to do so. Let's try to give back to these wild places and animals that have given us so much. Every little step, every action, each decision we make to try and do the right thing, it matters. At least that's what I'm telling myself, and I'm going to stick to it. So I hope you will too. I hope you will continue on this journey with me. I appreciate you. So until next time, thank you, get outside, and stay wired to hunt.
outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. 